Okay, we're now recording. We talked last week about reproof. We talked about the various things that we see in reproof. We saw John Newton said, Our natural temptation is to say what we should not say, or not to say what we should say. One is cruel arrogance, the other is cruel cowardice, and neither is love. So to say what we should not say is cruel arrogance, to not say what we should say is cruel cowardice, and neither is love. I'll talk about examples in Scripture of reproof. What's one that comes to mind right away? We actually we did talk about it last week, but what is a reproof we see in the New Testament that's glaring and obvious? And yes, well, when Jesus says, "Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone," and then they all leave. That's a very good one. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that is definitely a form of reproof. Yeah. Yes, Gary. Well, reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he'll love you. Yes. Yep. But what? And, and those, those are good. Those are good exhortations to rebuke. But what do we see in the New Testament? Rebuke. Good God, rebuke happening. When Jesus tells Peter to get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Yep. And how, how about the book we're studying now together up at church? We're preaching from. Yeah. Right. Right. Openly. You know. And we, we, we talked about how to do that. <clears throat> you know, hopefully, in most cases, it, it's, uh, it's sort of alone. You know, it's, it's a one-on-one sort of thing. With the exception being what, 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 uh, what Paul did with Peter, because Peter was a, a, a leader. He, 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 he was very openly uh, refuting the gospel. by He was denying the gospel by his actions. So that... That required a public open rebuke so that the others could learn as well. Uh, yeah, Todd. I was just going to say, um, uh, Jesus says to wait you're naked and you do not know it. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to be told you're naked. Don't <laughs> you know? The, emperor's, the emperor is naked, right? <clears throat> so today we'll get a little bit to how do we respond to these things, but I just wanted to share some of Newton's letters first, some of the specifics. I think it's helpful to take a look at what he wrote and to try to get a grip on what 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 biblical truth is he imparting? How did he get this thought? Where, where is this coming from? What scriptures are just so flow from him? You know, I was thinking back in that day because I'm sitting there yesterday saying, "What's that scripture on?" You know, I could just type a couple of words in Google and bring it right up in, in Bible Gateway, right? <clears throat> or, you know, concordances or whatever you have laying around. But not in his day. He had to know what stuff was. I don't know if they had uh, concordance back in 1730 or how exhaustive it was. I don't think it was. I don't think they had one. So the scriptures that he knew and that he had reference to, that he pours out in these letters, he's, he just pours out the gospel into people's souls constantly. He pours out the scriptures. And it all comes from his memory. <clears throat> Or, you know, he might have to look something up in his Bible, but they didn't have the tools we have now. We have everything that we need to just say, how do I have a biblically informed mind? How do I view the world the right way through Scripture? How does the incarnate God, Christ, <clears throat> reveal himself through me to other people? And we have so many tools at our hand now. There's no reason, there's no good excuse for the people of God <clears throat> to not have a place to turn in Scripture. Even some of our Bibles now, you can look up in the back, okay, what, what Scriptures do I go to for sadness? All right, what Scriptures do I go to for being a great husband? What, you know, what, 
You can Google it. It's just, you know, what more can I do, I hear the Lord say. So, so this, these are from a few letters to a lady <clears throat> known to John Newton as Miss Medhurst. It says here, the following letters are taken from Mr. Newton's sequel to Cardiphonia. So Cardiphonia was a collection of letters that was published after his death. What does that sound like it might mean? Those of you that are good at taking apart root languages, cardiphonia. What do you suppose that means? I know what it is definitely hard, but not fake. <coughs> I don't think the phony in that case means phony. But if I had to guess one person that would come up in this in this group, that would have been you. April. Cardiphonia. So well think about a megaphone, right? It's just, it's, it's, yeah, there's the heart speaking. Speakings of the heart, right? And they're in their in their in their headed it says here, eighteen letters addressed to several ladies. <laughs> Principally, however, to Miss Medhurst. These ladies lived in Yorkshire and were frequently visited by Mr. Newton in the several tours he made in the district at the time of his residence in Liverpool. It is presumed that these friends lived near together and sought each other's society, that by religious intercourse they might promote their own spiritual life and devise plans of usefulness for the good of others. The strain of Mr. Newton's letters shows them to have been eminently devout women. Miss Medhurst was related to the Countess of Huntington. So, aside from the fact that this is just such great writing, you know, people just don't talk like this. We've lost the ability to have that good conversation. Uh, here's some of the things that are going on. So, this particular letter, written September 10, 1760, the subject of the letter is the duty and happiness of looking to Jesus. And that's what he's addressing here. Uh, the best advice I can send... Well, let me ask this first. What is some of the well-intentioned but useless comfort that people can give to other people? Even Christians might sometimes do it. What kinds of things? Yes. Sending goodbyes. Sending goodbyes, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Well-intentioned but useless that we offer to people in severe trials. What's one that even even non-Christians, non-religious people use all the time? You're in my thoughts and prayers. Yeah, right. And even even if they're not in in my in my prayers, you're in my thoughts. Yeah. And it's nice to know you're not alone. It's it's encouraging just to get contact from other people, right? So even if you're getting a, it's good to get that. But ultimately, it's useless. I mean, it just doesn't. For Christians, it's very useless. I guess for for unbelievers who uh, sadly are anesthetized to the gospel there might be some some value in it but I think for the most part it's made to make who feel good? The person giving it, right? Virtue signal. Yeah, who said virtue signal? Let me guess. Um, so let's, let's in contrast to that look, look at this godly advice in and I'm going to ask you to be mindful of what scriptures you might be hearing here. I, I've recognized at least one, two, three, four, five here in this, in this bit of it. The best advice I can send, or the best wish I can form for you, is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the Apostle, which are just now upon my mind, looking unto Jesus. Amen. The duty... The privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Looking unto Jesus. 
the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Imagine Newton sitting at his desk, whatever that looked like, candlelight, no electricity, pen, fountain and pen. And as he's writing, just that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the Apostle, of the apostle which are just now upon my mind. I, I think I'm going to learn to re-talk. I want to talk like Newton. <laughs> Don't you want to talk like Newton? Maybe we'll have classes in, instead of, Newtonian, instead of Newtonian physics, we'll have one in Newtonian phonics. What scripture comes to mind when you hear looking unto Jesus? That one's a that one's pretty obvious one, right? Looking unto Jesus, right. Thank you, Sister Michelle. Looking on, yes, Hebrews 12, too. Looking unto Jesus, the author, or the pioneer and finisher, or the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, let us pray that the eyes of our faith and understanding may be opened and strengthened and then let us fix our whole regard upon him. But how are we to behold him? I answer in the glass of his written word. There he is represented to us in a variety of ways. So what happens when we're looking into the glass? What is that reference to? Looking into the glass of his word. So we, you probably know that word comes up once, right? In... 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah. He says we look in a glass, you know, dimly. But it's interesting in that verse when he says, I think, I think in the past, quite often I've taken that as we see ourselves only partially. And there's a certain truth to that because we're not going to really know ourselves fully until we see Christ. But really, it does seem to be talking, well, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known so the subject of that seems to be Jesus because it's talking about that <clears throat> so this is where we see him right and of course where else it, it just occurs to me now where else do we see this sense in scripture about looking seeing ourselves in the word yes right that's right and, who, and who's that yes very good 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 James 1.20. Yes, the sugar and the donuts and coffee are definitely giving someone a little juice. You got it. You got it. That's it. Right? And that's how we're to behold Him. That's how we're to look unto Jesus. In His Word. And again, some of this seems very obvious, but we all need reminders of this. This is what, if you want to, it's not praying for a supernatural revelation. I don't want to discourage people from seeking a real experiential part of of God. But the way that you experience God uniquely is in the Scripture. You will not experience Him any other way. There is no supernatural outpouring. There is no sort of spiritual... If you get an additional sort of uh, a a nudge or drive from the Spirit, it's going to be through the Word. That's the means that God has chosen. So, you're not going to get it through, you know, a cardinal fluttering in the tree like you've never seen one before. You're not going to get it from seeing... uh, Anything else in nature, although you might get you know thrilled by that, which you should, but you cannot look unto Jesus unless you look unto Jesus. And since He's not here with us physically right now, we get Him in His Word, and that tells us something. He is as real to us in His Word, in a sense, as if He were here. Although I do think, obviously, that's not. We'll know Him when we see Him, but we'll see Him like He is. So that it's not exactly the same. But it's all that God wants us to have in seeing Jesus. And our vision is never 20-20. It is ever improving. When heavy trials in life are appointed to us, and we are called to give up or perhaps to pluck out a right, a right eye, it is an easy manner for a stand by to say, be comforted. And it is as useless as easy. 
<laughs> but a view of Jesus by faith comes home to the point. You know? No one else can give us the comfort that we need unless they're giving us the scripture, of course. But then we have to take that and go with it. And what does that sound like? So again, here's Newton's mind as he's writing. And he just says, you know, when, when the time comes to pluck out the right eye, how are we going to do that? So where's that coming from? Where, where do we see the eye plucking in the scripture? Sermon on the Mount. That's right. That's right. The Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus says, if it's you know better to pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand. And how are we going to do that? Because it's hard to do, because we're not literally doing that. But what, what, what does plucking out the eye mean? But what would it mean for you, uh, metaphorically, figuratively speaking, to cut out the eye? Stop looking at that. Yeah, looking at that. <laughs> or do what you have to do to not look at that. Right? To... to, um, to uh, I was at, you know, when you go to the gym... And I've had this discussion with men. You know the way the women dress in the gym. It's it's this is the difference between this is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. I was talking the other day with a guy that I work with, and I was like, what various times that you can go to the gym and in the afternoon, which is unfortunately the best time for me, late afternoons. It's filled with all kinds of people, and the women are all they all have just these pasted-on stretch pants. And one of my co-workers says, the guy that invented those should get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. And you know, it's, it, you literally have to say, okay, so if, if such and such, if there's a lot of girls in this room, go in the other room and use the dumbbells for a while. You know, move the machine to a place where, you know, that's, that, that's plucking out the eye. Or whatever else works. If some people, you know, struggle with that. Others will. Many of them. So, if we're going to do that, we're not just going to grin and bear it. Newton's, Newton's point is, we got to look to Jesus, a view of Jesus by faith. How is looking at Jesus going to help us with a, a, a temptation to look at what we haven't? Well, how is that helpful? What, what's, that, what's that going to do, do you suppose? Why is Newton giving this advice? We can't look at two things at the same time. <laughs> That's a good point. That's very practical. Yeah. satisfied. Exactly, right? There's that word, satisfies, because we... we we crave satisfaction. We crave fulfillment. We crave something, and we're looking for it all over in the wrong place. But yeah, looking unto Him is going to give us what we need to say. Why am I looking to that sort of lesser, you know, pleasure right now? And it's only pleasure for a short time, right? Sin for a season, the Scripture says. He who thus suffered in our nature, who knows and sympathizes with all our weakness is now the, the supreme disposer of all that concerns us. That he numbers the very hairs of our heads, appoints every trial we meet with in number, weight, and measure, and will suffer nothing to befall us but what shall contribute to our good. This view, I say, is a medicine suited to the disease and powerfully reconciles us to every cross. So, we see the little numbers on the head here. Look at Newton's mind. Fully loaded with scripture. So when you're struggling, you're in trials. But remember, if every hair on your head is numbered, that means God knows what's going on. The Lord knows exactly what's going on in your life. He has appointed it. The same guy that appointed the number of, of, of hairs on your head, so to speak, right? He appoints every trial we meet with in number, weight, and measure, and will suffer nothing to befall us, but will contribute to our good. What does that sound like? He who suffered in our nature. Where's that coming from? Philippians 2. Who? Philippians 2. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's partially. Where exactly? Where do we see a scripture that says that he's able to sympathize with our weakness? Yeah. He's ha- tell you what, he's hanging on in Hebrews here in this letter. I found as I was going through this particular letter, he obviously has Hebrews in mind a lot because he continues to refer back to it in some sense. And, uh, which makes sense. He, he does it in another letter as well. Here's another one. He says, Again, are we almost afraid of being swallowed up by our many restless enemies? Or are we almost weary of our long pilgrimage to such a thorny, tedious, barren wilderness? A sight of Jesus has seen and saw him, crowned with glory, yet noticing all the sufferings of his poor servants, and just ready to receive them to himself, and make them partakers of his everlasting joy. This will raise the spirits and restore strength. This will animate us to hold on and to hold out. This will do it, and nothing but this can so if the obedience be the thing in question, looking unto Jesus is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude. And those who greatly love and are greatly obliged find obedience easy. Because we often think of obedience in a negative way, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, i got to do that. But imagine if we were to think of obedience in such a different way. A sight of Jesus as Stephen saw him crowned with glory Yet Jesus, noticing all the sufferings of his poor servants, and just ready to receive it. He sees Jesus ready to say, I'm ready to pull you out of this trial now. You're coming on up. See that. See that by faith. See that by faith. And that, that, of course, is from where? Where's Stephen? Going through all that horror. Acts 7, right? He just went through and gave the whole history of... Acts 7 is such a great letter. Stephen's... uh, Stephen's reproof of the Pharisees is such a great place to go. You can get a whole short history of the whole history of God and His people there. You know, you want to go to a little synopsis to what, what's the history of God and His people? Go there. <laughs> you get a whole history. There's a couple places in Scripture that do that. Right? But you get a whole short history of everything God has been doing with His people since day one. And that out of nowhere, after giving all that history of what God's purposes are and everything else, He comes and says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised the heart. How long will you resist the Holy Spirit? This is this guy that's, you know, they want to stone him for it. They're coming at him, the people that are of the way. And then he gives this excellent summary of everything God's ever done. And then he says to the Pharisees, you're excluded from this. You have no deal. You have no part in this. And they kill him for it. And there's Jesus ready to receive him. That seems so far removed from our experience. Doesn't it? Oh, the governor's being mean to us again. So what might disobedience be the result of? What failure? What, 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 is, what, what might be a failure? So if, if we're learning that obedience, as he said here, is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude, and those who greatly love and are greatly obliged find obedience easy, what then might we say about disobedience? The lack of love. Yeah, lack of... Lack of desire to. You can't obey without loving Jesus. You can't. It's a false, I guess, obedience. It's a forced obedience. Scripture says, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's not him saying, if you really love me, you'll do this. You know, he's not manipulating. He's, he's telling, look, the natural byproduct of love is, is going to be obedience. You love like I do, and you're going to be obedient. We we'll probably turn that heat down a little bit. I think, I think people are suffering, man. It just went off. <laughs> just said it, it just went off. <laughs> Might have to open a window in a minute. Uh, 
<laughs> and the day will come when we have these windows open and there's nice, fresh, clean air coming in here. But um, Okay, so. And yeah, right? She said I had a coat on. And gloves. And gloves. <laughs> oh, I've, I've been in that office she works in. That's a, that's, a, that's a cold place, man. I mean, your body during the week doesn't get a chance to really warm up a whole lot. I've been in there. Alas, and, and I have a little note here. Do we think this way to this statement? Alas, that in spite of myself, there still remains something to resist his will. But I, will, I long and pray for his destruction. And I see a day coming when my wish shall be accomplished and I shall be holy and forever the Lord's. Do we think this way? Do we long to see, do we long and pray for the destruction of, of what residue of fleshly thing is still in us? Do we long for its destruction? Do we pant for a final deliverance from that? Do we see a day coming when my wish will be accomplished? It's hard to see the day coming, isn't it? Is this me? Is it hard to see it? Is it hard to see that? Can you imagine it? Can you, can you see it? Do we work hard at actually seeing that? That that day is coming? Or does it seem so far removed? Do you find yourself, like I do sometimes, thinking, you know, you know, 2,000 years of church, all kinds of terrible things have happened to all kinds of people. You know, what's happening around the world now is terrible, and it's been happening around the world forever in the same exact way. Incredible oppression of people. You know, so nothing is... It's multiplying, maybe. There's less and less and less and less of the uh, of the Judeo-Christian ethic, so it's becoming easier and easier to oppress people. It's becoming now. It's becoming very natural to oppress and hurt people mm-hmm. and to attack people, because as the Scripture says that that we're gonna the love of many will wax cold. People are becoming colder. It's almost like it's almost like the um, Entropy that we see taking off in the universe, but the universe is cooling off and expanding over time. Eventually, if it were to go on long enough, it would experience just a death of coldness, right? It's like that way with humanity as well. As time goes on and we're expanding more and more further and further away from the center, which is Christ, we are experiencing that sort of heat death, that complete loss of love is growing cold. Love means nothing. So it's happening. So the church has to keep that vision alive. We have to be so. Um, uh, effort, you know, a really concentrated effort. Now, this is another letter. This is sent. This, so, remember, he's sending this to a group of, it sounds like, fairly young women, very devout young women. And it's the very, the very subject specific as to what he's addressing. So, there's something going on in their lives that he's helping with this. In this particular letter, a little summary trials ought not to discourage us, gracious promises of future blessedness, and the necessity of humility and watchfulness. Again, to Miss Medhurst. This is November 2nd, 1761. So it's, you know, it's about a year later. A little more than a year later. She's still carrying on a letter writing follow-up ministry with these women. Let us not be greatly discouraged at the many tribulations, difficulties, and disappointments which lie in the path that leads to glory. Now, I think too when I read these things, as much as, again, the love of many is growing cold and things are getting worse, at the same time, we have a lot of mitigating factors they didn't have in those days. Uh, when they had headaches, when they had gastrointestinal problems, when they had very common diseases that we have now, they suffered for weeks. They saw people die. If you had 10, 12 kids in your family, quite likely you were going to see three or four of them die. I mean, death was much more common. 
not just grandma and grandpa, but brother, sister, mother, father were laid on the parlor with coins over their eyes. People saw that. So, it's difficult to immerse ourselves in, this, in, the, in the middle, uh, in the early 18th century, but it's helpful maybe to take a look and see what was it like then. What did they do for allergies? <laughs> the stuff that we just take for granted. <clears throat> Running water, right? Seeing our Lord has told us before, He has made a suitable provision for every case we can meet with. And is Himself always near to those that call upon Him, a sure refuge and an almighty strength, a never-failing, ever-present help in every time of trouble. Seeing likewise that He Himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for our sakes. He drank off the full cup of unmixed wrath for us. Shall we then refuse the taste of the cup of affliction at His appointment? He drank the cup of wrath for us to the dregs. Shall we in, in turn say no to the cup that He passes off to us so that we can experience some of His, his likeness? You drink some of this and you'll be a little bit more like me. It's a, it's a cup of suffering. No thank you, Lord. He drank off the full cup, uh, especially when His wisdom and love prepare this for us. And, and, and proportion every circumstance to our strength. When he put it into our hands, not in anger, but in tender mercy, to do us good, to bring us near to himself. And when he sweetens every bitter draft with those comforts which none but he can give. There's, there's so much scripture in that that has just come to me now. But the first one that came to mind was, was Psalm 46.1, right? He's a very present help in times of trouble. But what else stands out? He himself was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. Who is that from? Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is such a helpful verse, even to use with um, people that might not be believers, but have some familiarity with Jesus, who are, might be away from the Lord. I've actually used that verse a couple times in the last few weeks. This person going through particular sorrow. Say, look, you have to remember who is in your stead, who ministers His grace to you. As a man of sorrows acquainted with, with grief. It's not just something Jesus knew once in a while. He was acquainted with it. He was a man of sorrows. Right? That's why I'm sure that at times Jesus did smile and laugh in Scripture, but we never see it. We never see it. Um, the Chosen, that series that on, on uh, Amazon, you know, it does a great job sticking with the biblical narrative and it fills in some of the blanks with some creative imagination. And and they do show Jesus there being lighthearted. And, and you have to assume some of that was happening, but Scripture wants us to know him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Forsaken, betrayed, abandoned, neglected, abused. The very people that God appointed to be his people turning against him. But the comfort, no. So what, where does that come from? Uh, so we know he drank of the full cup of unmixed wrath for us. That's all over the scriptures. Shall we then refuse to taste the cup of affliction at his, his appointment, especially when his wisdom and love prepare it for us and proportion every circumstance to our strength? What's, what's, what scripture comes to mind with that? When he, yeah, yeah, yeah. But will with the temptation make a way of escape, right? Right? So, and so, and what's neat about this is he's not, he's not putting like quotes around Scripture. He does that in a few places where he specifically quotes Scripture. But he's, he's just talking Scripture. 
it's just become part of his everyday vernacular. He just, it just comes out of him that way. He assumes they're going to know what it means too. Right? And what a great way to put that, especially when his wisdom and love prepare it for us. If we would remember that his love has not abandoned us, has not left us. We just don't equate love with suffering. We, we feel unplugged from the love of Christ and suffering. When in fact, we're just as plugged in there, no more or less. We can't have any more or less of Christ in a sense than at the moment. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. He has that in quote, so he's quoting a very specific text there. Anyone know it? Second Corinthians seven one. Okay? And here he is, he gets back into the Hebrews mindset again. Let us lay aside every weight, let us not be slothful, but followers of that cloud of witnesses who in every age have set their word to the truth and power of God. They were once as poor as we are now. And they had complaints and their fears, their enemies and temptations. They were exercised with a wicked heart and a wicked world. So there's two Hebrews things there. Hebrews 11 is going on. Hebrews 12, 1 going on there. But at length, the blood of Jesus and the word of his testimony made them more than conquerors. What's that coming from? The blood of Jesus and the word of his testimony. What's that from? Well, that verse does come to mind. And that comes from... Revelation 6 is one of them. Yeah, Revelation 6 is one. This particular one is from Revelation 12, 11. It comes up a couple of times in Revelation. But the we are more than conquerors verse is... Is that Romans or Corinthians? Romans. It is Romans. Yeah. That makes sense in Romans 8 since all things work together for His glory and our good. While we are sighing, they are singing. Remember, they've been where we are. While we are sighing, they are singing. While we are fighting, they are triumphing. But their song, their triumph, their joy will not be complete till we are called up to join them. The Lord prepare for us and hasten that happy hour. What scripture comes to mind? Again, I'll tell you from Hebrews. While we're signing, they're singing. While we're fighting, they're triumphing. But their song, their triumph, their joy, where they are, will not be complete till we are called to join them. I'm sorry? Yes, so it is them. It's those that he's referring to. And he's saying that those, that cloud of witnesses, they won't be complete till we're called up to join them. Hebrews 11.40, maybe? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. And that is, do you recall it? Uh, the, the exact wording of it? Yeah, the thing without us should not be made perfect. Is right. how the King James yes. yes, exactly. They, this, they, their perfection awaits still too. But they're, they're, they're out of the, uh, they've crossed the river. You know? They, they you know, remember uh, Pilgrim's Progress when he was, when Christian was in that river and it was overwhelming him, you know? And that's, that's, that's us. That's where we're all going to be eventually. We all have to cross that river, so to speak. I was listening to, a, I found a, a, because I need another podcast, I found one that's uh, called Five Minutes in Church History. Uh, and it's done by Stephen something with, uh, uh, yes, who, who else, did you do it? Yeah, so that's part of Ligonier Ministries. Five minutes of, of, of a little historical perspective on a particular person. He was talking about James Montgomery Boyce. Who, you know, James Montgomery Boyce, what a giant in the face he was. But when he was 62, he was diagnosed with stage 4 liver cancer and died four months later. In that four months, he wrote 11 worship hymns. That's like, that can happen. That's good for God's people. That's not, that's not an exception that nobody else can have. That's a common experience for God's people if they are so inclined. 
And of course, he gives us you know the greater examples as well. And now he wraps up this letter with no. Uh, he, he mentions. He says here, I don't mention these things to discourage you. Um, these things we're saying, you know, the world observes you. Many would rejoice at your halting. He says a number of things. He says, I do not mention these things to discourage you. No. <laughs> were every leaf upon the trees and every blade of grass a sworn enemy to our souls, we are safe under the shadow of our great rock. If every leaf upon every tree and every blade of grass were our sworn enemy to our souls, we are safe under the shadow of our great rock. The blessing is his and he will not withhold it. But the appointed means are our part. And it is our wisdom and happiness to be found waiting on him in the use of them. What does it mean to do that? What are these means of grace? What is it to wait on the Lord? What are these things he's talking about? I like the great rock thing. Where's that come from? You know? Uh, Isaiah 32, 2. Which is? A man shall be Roughly. in the hiding place from the wind and a sh- yes. shadow in a great land. Yes. And it, how, yes, thank you. How about something in the Psalms? Lead me to that rock that is higher than I. Right? Psalms 62.2. It's a living, breathing concordance. You know? <laughs> Gary is faster than Google. <laughs> That's not bad. And more reliable. Who said that? <coughs> and more reliable. Absolutely. Um, which is good. That's um. But you know, and if you know, you know, Gary's ministry a lot is a one-on-one with the Word, right? I mean, Gary has such a strength in one-on-one Word ministry with people. Why? Because it's a similar kind of thing. Just a, a, a scripture-saturated mind. It's just impossible to minister to people. And I won't even try to minister to unbelievers outside of a real biblical. Even if I don't quote scripture to them, I'm going to. I'm going to sort of. I'm going to sneak it in on them. And I'm going to, I'm going to help them with, with, with reality. Right? I'm, and so, what, what are these? He, he's not, he, he says, we're safe under the shadow of our great rock. The blessing is his. We, he will not withhold it. But, the appointed means are our part. What's he talking about there? What's he telling these, these sisters? The appointed means are our part. What's he saying to them? Read your Bible. Yeah, that's fine, right? What are the means? What are the means from which we... How do we... What are the ways in which... What are the settings in which... What are the conditions under which we experience this blessing from Christ that we have, even if every leaf of the tree and every blade of grass were a sworn enemy of our soul? What are the conditions under which we can... How do we get that? How do we get that? How do we access that? Pray. Pray? Yeah, right. What else? Yeah. It's from everything. His word, his people, his promises. His word, his people, his promises, his everything that he shows us in Scripture by which we get access by this grace unto that into the throne. So all of those things are means under which and ways under which we can pursue Jesus and get and, and get our arms around, get our heads around that blessing. So those are some of the letters he signs them again with such ways as I think I mentioned this last week. I was going to look this up, but didn't. I wish I did. Like, look up endings of letters in, in the 18th century. Google it. So the first one was, I am your affectionate servant. Okay? Now, I think, like, if men were... And by the way, I do think that... I've experienced the bad side of email. 
right? How people can carelessly use email and text and how people can be misunderstood. But I no longer hold to the principle that, you know, email or texting is or it's not, it's not, you can't really communicate there because you can't get body language on it. Paul wrote to churches. All the letters. If we're careful with our language and we're, and we're precise, we have everything we need linguistically, the syntax, we have everything we need to communicate who and what we intend. And if there's misunderstanding, then it can potentially be clarified. But part of writing is anticipating misunderstanding as well. Amen. Right? So I do believe that emailing and letter writing, these things can be very useful because sometimes, I do see your hand, Todd, sometimes the person, even in the form of a reproof, the person, you have to know the person, how do they typically respond, for example, to reproof or something? Is their wall of defense going to be up so high that I can't get through? You use a letter or something like that, and that person has a chance to be alone with that a little bit. Talk. Well, he, and the sadness behind that whole thing, because I agree with you, uh, the sadness, though, is the education level. Good point. That, that has, that should uh, create the capacity yes. to be able to uh, communicate through those ways to mm-hmm. letter writing. Yeah, we don't have that today. And, and also, too, you could say the spiritual level of the Christian to be able to write those letters mm-hmm. right. as well. Yeah, good point. It's hard to capture the Spirit. Right. Uh, there is no emoji for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no appropriate emoji that can substitute the work of the Spirit. Mm. There is a cross emoji. There is a cross emoji. There's probably a double one too, right? There is. And there's fire. Yes. And, and, people that, right, and people that really know might be able to, but you know, emojis are just a silly, fun form of communication. You know, that... You wouldn't want to use them in an exclusively way in which you're going to encourage people or certainly rebuke them. Okay, so that's that series of letters to the to the wonderful Miss Medhurst and her lady circle. Now, saying all that to say it's difficult now, it would be hard for a man, even in such an email as that, to uh, say a lady in the church, to say, I am your affectionate servant. <laughs> we just don't talk that way, right? Good, I need my dishes done. Right? <laughs> I am your affectionate servant. And then he ends this other letter, I am, etc. <laughs> the J-N. That's how we end it. I am, etc. J-N. Like, you know, you know I'm like, ah, why is he doing that? Okay, so these, this next little series of letters, for, uh, I think I might have only covered one in this particular collection, maybe two. There's two, this Captain Alexander Clooney. Now, Captain Clooney was engaged in the West Indian trade. Initially, probably first the slave trade, but then after that, materials and goods. And as the readers of Mr. Newton's life will remember, the latter became acquainted with him at St. Kitts on his homeward voyage from Africa in the year 1754. From the time of the conversion, the peculiar circumstances of Mr. Newton had very much shut him out from all intercourse with professional Christians. So, whatever happened at the time of his conversion, Newton did not have a lot of exposure to solid Christian people and solid teaching. But he did, he did engage the friendship and conversation of his Captain Clooney, a man of experience in the things of God, was greatly helpful to him. Among other advices, his friend urged him the duty of a public profession. So even then, he urged him on probably like baptism and a public profession of faith and directed him to some of his religious connections in London and especially to his pastor, the Reverend Samuel Brewer of Stepney. And I've read some of Samuel Brewer's stuff too as well. Interesting. 
Anyway, in a letter uh, in a letter of Mr. Newton to Captain Clooney, dated Liverpool, February 1761, he further says, I often think of you with peculiar pleasure and thankfulness, as by you the Lord was blessed to bring me to know his people. Just acknowledging his... So this is how this is who he's writing letters to now, this particular letter. And in this letter he's writing on emphasizing the duty of diligence and watchfulness. Okay? And he says, uh, Let us then resign ourselves into his hands... Let us gird up the loins of our minds, be sober, and hope to the end. Let us, like faithful servants, watch for our Lord's appearance, and pray earnestly that we may be found ready. It is coming. We live in a trying time. How many erroneous principles and scandalous practices abound? How many fair professors miscarry? Wow. I identify three scriptures in that little five-sentence thing. Right, let us let us gird up the loins of our minds. So he's speaking in very you know King's English there. What does that mean to gird <laughs> to gird up the loins of your mind? What does that mean? <laughs> if you could sum it up in one word, what would it be? Think. <laughs> gird up the loins of your mind. Think. Be sober. He doesn't mean not you know not not getting you know all tanked up, not drinking. What does, what does it mean to be sober minded? Serious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's um I always live in that sort of place of how much levity is is it is it uh, careful to carry about and how much of that could compromise sober mindedness in myself and others. It's it's a hard thing to you know, I, I like a quick joke or a sarcastic response as much as the next person, but I often wonder how much of that is too much. How much of that might compromise um, one's own sober-mindedness and, and, and distract or detract from it. And then let us, like faithful servants, watch for our Lord's appearance. Where, where do we see that? Is that not one of the parables? Do we not see watching, watching for the Lord's appearance? Do we? What would it be, what would it be like? Do you suppose? And you don't have to answer this. I'm just putting it out there rhetorically. To be watching for His appearance in, in, in all things. Sometimes I think about this stuff and I say, man, I'm kind of a lame Christian compared to a guy like Newton, right? We live in a trying time. This is, this is the 1800s. How many erroneous principles and scandalous practices abound? I was Second uh, Thessalonians 3.2 on that. I would ask you, but I'm going to go read it instead so they can hear it in another, in another voice. I recently changed I recently changed the voice on Siri from American to an Australian one because it sounds neater. I can get the same instructions for go, going from here to there, but I better listen when, when, I'm, when I'm hearing this Australian voice. Yeah. So, so Second Thessalonians. Somebody else read that. Second Thessalonians three two. I've heard about enough of me. from perverse and evil men. Yeah. For not all have faith. Yeah. That's what I think when I think of erroneous principles and scandalous practices abound. You know? There's evil men out there. Not all are of the faith. How many fair professors miscarry? What's he saying? What's that mean? How many fair teachers? Yeah, how, how, how many... Huh? Yeah, well, how, I think if you begin, how many fair professors miscarry, I think those that end up falling away. They never come to birth. You know? Um... They are not genuine Christians. 
and they have an impact on Christians. But neither need we be distressed and unbelieving. Jesus is able to keep us from falling. Scripture? Hey Jude. That went to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and present you, you know, blameless and without spot before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Right? Jude 24 and 25. Let us be steady in the use of his of his instituted means. What might those be? Oh, that's what I'm hearing. Wow, so that's new. Let's be steady in the use of his instituted means and sincerely desirous to abstain from all appearance of evil. The rest we may confidently leave to him in whom whoever trusts shall never be ashamed. And uh, sincerely desirous to abstain from all appearance of evil. By the way, that's a that's a tricky verse in a way. I think it gets misused a lot because in that he's saying test the spirits, you know, hold fast to which is good, abstain from every appearance of evil. And I've heard people say that use that verse against somebody I knew that was going into a package store to get something. They said, you know, as a Christian, you shouldn't be going into that liquor store that has the appearance of evil. All right, and okay, well maybe it does to you. That, that, that's not what that verse is saying. You could apply that to any number of things. It looked like something that that person wouldn't do. When you're listening to these prophets, when he says, listen to all, listen to all they say, <clears throat> hold fast to which is good, appear, and abstain from every appearance of evil. The whole point of that is pay attention to what they're saying as they're claiming to speak on God's behalf or giving his word. Now, we should also, and I think the rest of all the scriptures would tell us, look, bad company corrupts good morals. There's a number of things that say, look, stay away from things that, you know, could have the, um, but, but someone else is, own question of personal liberty does not define what the appearance of evil is. But in our own hearts and our own minds, that which appears as evil to us we ought to avoid. Don't give it a don't give it a place. Is that like the verses that don't let what you think is good be called? Yes. Yeah, definitely. When he's talking in the Romans 14 passage about and, and also in, he, speak, he addresses it in Corinthians as well but in Romans in particular talking about that you know the whole vegetables and meats thing, and then that goes into the biggest subject of you know why, why should why should that happen? Why should what's good be spoken evil of? Oh, in reverse of what? Why 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 let something that's actually evil be well spoken of? And then he closes the letter. Mrs. Newton joins in respects to you and Miss, Mrs. Clooney. We beg a frequent remembrance in your prayers. We beg a frequent remembrance in your prayers. I am etc. J M. He has. Um, I'll wrap this up in the last five minutes with another letter that he sent to him. This one is on Satan as an angel of light. That's the that's the subject of the letter. This is written in October twelfth of seventeen sixty six. Sometimes as I read these and I see the dates on the letters, I think about what was going on in America when this was going on and when all the revolution was starting to you know across the seas going on, right? In in how. I wonder how like Newton addressed what was going on somewhere else, if he even did. Okay, so, uh, <clears throat> he says here, I have been in some time this morning on Isaiah 52. Today began with the fifth verse. He says, in the afternoon I spoke a little of Satan's trials from St. Corinthians 2.11. And this is what he says, no coiner 
No coiner can equal him for imitation. Where Christ has a church, he will have a synagogue. Where the Spirit produces any graces, he, again, speaking of Satan, like the magicians of Egypt, will do something as like it, and yet as unlike it as possible. So he's referring back there, really, to Exodus, right? What a neat way to pick up a little theme. And, and Again, he's not quoting Scripture. He's just putting it out there. Just like the magicians back then had their spirits and had their, had their ways to... They did some pretty, pretty neat things, right? They were able to turn some water into blood. They were able to turn a staff into a snake. Um, what, what, does anyone recall, because I don't offhand, what was the point of which the magicians were like... Couldn't make what? The gnats. Turn the dust into flat, yeah. flat. They're yeah, like, we're done, man. We're done. And, and, and Satan has his limits as well. He has something that comes so near the gospel that it is called by St. Paul another gospel. And yet reality is no gospel at all. So he's likening the false gospels to the magician's tricks back in Exodus. He deals much... Huh, he deals much in half-convictions and almost Christians, but does not like thorough work. He will let people talk about grace as much as they please and commend them for it, provided talking will satisfy them. What other author does this sound like? What other book? Not, it's not in scripture. Who? Yeah, speak it. Who? What book? Yeah, the screw tape letters, right? Where Uncle Wormwood is speaking to his nephew. Um, Uncle Screw Tape is. Is anyone not familiar with the screw tape letters? <clears throat> anyone not know what those are? Okay. So, um, I think he's doing a similar thing here. Right? He deals much in half... Satan loves half convictions. He likes almost Christians. They're his favorite, but he does not like <laughs> thorough work. Satan will let people talk about grace as much as they please and commend them for it, provided talking will satisfy them. Right? Satan's well in tune with what's going on in the church, and he won't bother himself... Satan doesn't really need to bother himself with certain people. The ones that like to talk a good game. He sits back and smiles at them. And then here, uh, he will preach free grace when he finds people willing to receive the notion as an excuse and cloak for idleness. But, let him look and talk as he lists. He is Satan still. And those who are experienced and watchful may discern his cloven foot hanging below his fine garment of light. <laughs> right, a very medieval picture there of Satan, right? As if he's a hoofed creature, but... <clears throat> Let him look and talk as he lists. He is still Satan. Let those who are experienced and watchful may discern his cloven foot hanging below his fine garment of light. What a great way to put that. And he is never more a devil than when he looks like an angel. He is never more his most vicious and dangerous when he looks least like it to the undiscerning eye. Let's go back to the whole ministry of the Word. Then. Which goes back to every reason why Newton engages in this letter, my letter writing ministry. <coughs> excuse me, to the extent that he does, he is just driving home the Word in the course of casual conversation, and we should do likewise. We should do likewise. But pay attention to yourself when you're encouraging people. Are you? Are you? Are you reinforcing them even in, in, in a... Uh, are you sort of surreptitiously reinforcing their biblical, their spiritual reality, their real worldview, as opposed to just engaging them at the level of their specific trial? 
not addressing the specifics of the trial itself and giving practical advice, which is helpful, but are you, at the same time, are you, are you front-loading that? Are you end-loading that? Are we doing that with a good biblical uh, approach, with a scriptural approach, calling to mind the things of the Spirit now? Because the Spirit is going to work through that. And, he's going to, and the Spirit is going to use that in ministering to people. And so let your, let your texts and your emails be really useful, too. You know, um, let your, your regular conversation. I, I want my goal is to let these sort of letters of Newton affect my regular conversation in the way that I pay attention to what people are saying. And I think it's just because so much of our conversation is fluff with other people, right? We don't need very much, we don't need a manual on letter writing, or we don't need to be, have a good example of how do you just talk silliness. Now, how do you just talk about things that have no real eternal verities to them, that have no... Even the practical helps. Because we're so, we're immersed in it, we're, we're soaking in it all the time, in useless conversation. We hear useless conversation all the time, in and this is not in any way to discourage anyone from listening to news and, and talk programs. They have a place. They have the. But keep in mind as well, there's not a lot of. It's easy to get discouraged and get your get your um, sauce up and everything right alongside with them. Get the fur up on the back of your neck when you hear about, you know, Putin doing thus and such. All right. But to remember what forces at work behind that. And when you're talking to people, maybe there's an opportunity too to say, you know what? This isn't just human. There's a reason why. Putin's like this can reach the level they have. Why do you think? Imagine having this conversation. Around, how do you think it's possible for Putin? Like, and their response would be political and whatnot. And to say, what, what? How does your worldview account for this? How does such evil happen? You know, or you know, whatever the case may be. I just think that if we're mindful to orient our conversations and, and, and focus them a little bit more on holiness and, and let the Lord work through us. We won't just be satisfied to share the misery of, you know, whatever political topic is that one of the day. Yeah. And that's not, again, to say, walk away from those things. We need to be very politically engaged. And we need to be as sharp as any, uh, anyone. Yeah. The scripture says, when you speak, speak of the oracles of God. Yeah, yeah. And yet, when we do that, we still may get in trouble, but that's okay, because it's still God's will. Yeah. I was just thinking recently how I might have a conversation with somebody in relationship to Ukraine. And, mm. and yet, Amos says it in Amos 3.6, he says, when the cities are devastated, it's the Lord who's done it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, be prepared also, when you speak of the oracles of God, yeah. Sure. The language is also not going to first connect with the world because they don't think like God. Right. Mm-hmm. Only Christians do. Yep. But also you have to be willing to take the hits because you're communicating the will and word of God to a mass of people who sure. actually need to know and hear. Yep. Yeah, I mean, to really use this enough to say, you know, uh, uh, the way that I view the world, it doesn't surprise me that somebody like Putin can rise to the level of power that he does. Look at the wickedness that man can do. You know, and to really get in, get in touch with that sense of this is people know deep down inside this is not the way things are supposed to be. Even when people push the question of evil and they push it back on you, hey, how can if there's such a good God, why does all this happen? That's the person recognizing things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the underlying assumption is there's a supposed to beness about things. Mm-hmm. And what is that? How do we define that supposed to beness? So, all right, who wants to close this in prayer? Yeah, Shannon, thanks. I was going to ask you anyway, if, if no one did. Oh, Father, we thank you for the 